Please sit. I wonder if there is something in your life, something that you can think of that just hangs with you, an issue that no matter the thought you give it, the time you give it, the examination you give it, you just can't let go of. Even in your moments of broadest and deepest self-awareness, even social awareness, you just can't let go of this thing, this thought. And when it comes up in you, if, it, if you have a moment where you might be haunted by this reality, I bring this up to you this morning because um, most of you know a process that we undertake in order to um, stand in the place that I'm standing includes a graduate school degree, a, a, a somewhat laughable term for that, a, a master of divinity. I have a certificate that states that I am a master of divinity. That certificate hangs upstairs in our house as you make your way through Jimmy and Cindy's bedroom into our bathroom and into the water closet. That certificate is right above the toilet. Just to remind us that humility is the utmost importance for someone who is a master of divinity. Nevertheless, I digress. In that graduate school education, a big portion of, of the formation that, that comes from professor to student is instruction on staying faithful to the text. The story is the story, Jimmy. Whatever you do as a clergy person, don't divert from the story itself. It's drilled into our heads and our experiences when we study the, the, the scriptures and when we study theology, so much so that we're reminded as preachers, just so you know, the heresy that you preach from the pulpit in the liturgy is always backed up by the creed. The creed gets the last word every Sunday, no matter how brilliant or funny or humble the preacher is. And when I was in graduate school, in my last year of graduate school, a portion of that education was an, a tour of Western religious art, art history. It's a course on art history. And if you know anything about Western religious art history, you know the piece of art that sits on the top of the pyramid is Rembrandt's prodigal son. Dr. Parker held that piece of art before us as the most important piece of Western Christian art. But here's the deal. Rembrandt 
gets the story wrong. If you pay careful attention to the story, and here's my beef, here's the thing that I just cannot let go, no matter the time I give it or the attention my therapist gives it or the conversations I might have with my wife or my very best friend, the piece that I just can't let go. If Do you know the painting? Some of you most assuredly know the painting. It depicts the son back at the farmhouse kneeling before the father in tattered rags, father receiving him with open hands, suspicious older brother in the back, hired hand adjacent. The painting is melancholy and dark, to some degree more Goya than it is Rembrandt. But here's the deal. Rembrandt misses this detail in the story that is of the utmost importance in this parable. You see, the son never makes it back to the farmhouse. The story says, while he was still a long way off, The father spied him on the road, was filled with compassion, and ran down the road to greet his son. No matter what you say about Rembrandt's prodigal son, he misses the depth and breadth and eccentricity of the Father's wide and steadfast love for the child. The story goes on from there to be one of the most radically loving stories in the history of all stories. And maybe we, honestly, maybe we miss it because the story is familiar to us. Maybe it just passes us by from time to time. The father running out on the road to greet him, bringing him back to the farmhouse. And then there's this triptych, this trilogy of loving restoration that happens to the son. The first thing is, A robe, a robe. His tattered rags are placed with a robe. The father restores his son's dignity, his personal human dignity is immediately restored. And in the next beat, an even more loving A more loving move, a ring. The son's personal dignity is just not is not just restored, but his place in the family is restored by this gift of a ring. And then in the most heart-rending, mind-blowing, tear-yanking move, the father next gives him a pair of sandals. Son, here are the keys to the work truck. 
are free to come and go as you please. Personal dignity, a place in the family, and the freedom to go and do as you please. When we read this story, we miss some of these details. When that son goes to his father in the beginning of the story and says, hey, can I have my share of the inheritance? What we're meant to hear is my life, my life, dad, would be better if you were dead. And then in that incredibly hurtful moment, the father grants the wish of his son. He gets, gets into a terrible position. The son moves to Vegas. He squanders his fortune with gambling and women and gets to the lowest point of his life, this detail. He's working for a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, but a pig farmer Gentile. This is the lowest of the low. And in that moment, he has an awakening. Today, we would call that rock bottom. He hits rock bottom, and he doesn't have the assumption that he'll be loved back into his family. He says, even the people that work for my dad have so much more than this. I will turn around. I will repent. I will make this U-turn in my life. I will go back to my father in hopes for a bunk in the bunkhouse. And yet, here's this place of the father, staring through the binoculars, looking through the spotting scope. And while he is still a long way off, he sees his son coming down the road. He is filled with compassion and joy at the return of his child. But here's the deal, and here's why we read this story during Lent, a season of fasting and special devotion, a season of opening ourselves up to self-examination, 40 days and some Sundays of coming to grips with what we've done right and what we've done wrong, a season of honesty, why we read this story during this particular season has to do with the Father's compassion. Let's just be honest. Let's just say that the dad in the story is just really trying to be a great dad. He's a good guy all around. He's been quite successful in the life that he's led, successful enough to make sure that his two kids have been put in successful positions to go along and succeed, and he earnestly has a desire to be a good father. Do you think that person shows that kind of love? I don't think so. I think the father 
is able to welcome the Son with such openness and such mercy and such extravagant love because the Father has been there. He knows what it's like not to measure up. He knows what it's like to disappoint and injure the people that he loves the most. And it is through that brokenness that he is able to greet his child who has done such harm and created such offense all throughout their separation. This returned child's uh, episode is not the end of the story, right? There's this beautiful exchange between dad and older son. That son who legitimately has worked hard and made straight A's in school and you know, he probably wasn't the captain of the football team, but I bet he lettered and he was pretty good. He was never arrested. He never disappointed his parents in any massive way. And he comes and says like, I, I just don't understand, Dad. I just don't understand how when he, this guy who has done the things that he's done, how does he get welcomed back with the slaughter of the fatted calf when my, when my friends from the high school football team want to have a party, we just ask for pizza. And here you are slaughtering the fatted calf. This is like standing rib roast for this ne'er-do-well son, this brother of mine. And he comes by his experience quite honestly, right? Why does he have that reaction? Because he has never been there. He doesn't know the geography of rock bottom. He's just performed and achieved like many human beings do. But he has never been to the bottom. Church, if we are to walk away with something during this season of Lent, 40 days and some Sundays set aside to get in touch with our own brokenness and our own real struggles in life, if we're to take away something other than other than the thing that I deliver you week in and week out in this place, which is, hey, here is a God who is quick to listen, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you are the object of that love. If we are to take away something other than that essential lesson during this 
season of Lent. I would invite you that when you are met by a brother or a sister or a cousin or the dearest of friends or a stranger who is in need of mercy and grace, that you would greet them not through a sense of your own accomplishment and achievement, but that you would greet them through your brokenness and your struggle and your pain. Amen.